are in the middle of a series where we are walking through Romans chapter 8. Jared and I had a conversation at one point as to how long this series would last. Initially, it was going to be five to six weeks. It may take us until 2021. So we are looking at Romans 8, picking up in verses 18 through 25. That's today's text. But before we get there... Just so that we can acknowledge the things that have been said over these last few weeks, I want to read to us chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to pick up with me in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and its peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father." The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Verses 18 through 25, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, 
We wait for it with patience. That's the reading of God's Word. I've lived 15 months now. I keep a running tally as to how long we as a family have been in Lake Jackson. The first time that I ever visited... I was in San Antonio uh, doing a conference for some student pastors, Jared, and at the time our volunteer student pastor, Josh Dawes, they came to the conference and I rode back with them just for those who are keeping score. I had no idea as to who these two people were, but I got in the back of a Ford Flex and rode with them for three and a half hours to Lake Jackson toward you and your mosquitoes. When I got here, one of the first things that I noticed was that this place is uh, designed a little differently. If you are unfamiliar with Lake Jackson, if you are to go into our grocery store, the HEB, you can see that we don't necessarily have blocks in the city. We, uh, as a community, are shaped like a rose, if you look at the overview, which is a very odd thing, but yellow rose of Texas and all that, I'm with you. Um, one of the other things that I noticed, probably the primary thing that I noticed about this town was when I would drive from home to home, or we would drive from neighborhood to neighborhood, I didn't go to all of the homes on that first visit, I saw these privacy fences that were unlike anything I'd ever been around. I'd never been in a place that had so many large fences. Now I've been around fences... But I've never been around fences that are nine feet tall. I've never seen this at all. It it was almost like you were going to Alexandria on The Walking Dead. These huge fences everywhere that you would go. So imagine that you're in the backyard of one of these homes. But you're not your age now. You're a nine-year-old. Whenever you were nine. I don't know if that was two weeks ago or if that was more than two weeks ago. And as you sit in that backyard, your backyard is not a great place to be. It is full of dangerous things. There are um, rocks all over the yard with that Augustine grass that everyone loves. Rocks all over the yard. There is broken glass all over the yard. If you look around the yard, it is obviously a dangerous place. Not only are there rocks and glass, there are also potholes all over the yard. There, are, there is no way for you to run from place to place as a nine-year-old. There's no playground in the backyard. It's a pretty abysmal yard. It is full of things that are vile and unhelpful, like pictures of Tom Brady and cats. If cats don't bother you, I have to ask you a question. Have you ever met a cat? But but as you wait in your yard, this terrible yard, over the nine-foot fence at the house next door, you hear joyful people playing. You hear celebration. You hear what sounds like a good time. The ice cream truck that you've never been anywhere near, they have parked in front of that yard. But you can just hear it. You cannot really see it. So you take some of those cats and you stack them on top of one another. And you stand on the back of these stacked cats and you seek to peek over the edge of the fence. 
Because on the other side of the fence, there's something that's better. Romans chapter 8, one theologian says, is us standing on our tiptoes to try to peer over the wall of the fence of futility in this life to see the hope on the other side for us, the joy that resides in Jesus. That we would go through this life and we would see that this is not the end, that this is not God's great design, this is not God's initial design. This is the fall and this is sin and this is what we have to process. St. John of the Cross, Christian writer before C.S. Lewis and... Um, Tolkien and the other Christian writers that people can't name. In a book, in a poem called The Dark Night, he calls The Dark Night of the Soul. It's the title of a poem of a Christian who lived in the 16th century. And in this poem, he describes the journey of the soul from its bodily home to its union with God. And this phase in between is called the dark night of the soul. And that's, for, for centuries, it's been used to describe what it, is, what it is like when those who have faith in a loving God struggle with unwanted circumstances. Every Christian in this room faces that dark night of the soul. F. Scott Fitzgerald, the, the writer of Great Gatsby, Great Gatsby, he said it in this way. He said, in a real dark night of the soul, it's always 3 o'clock in the morning, which is not night and it is not morning. Day after day after day. That's where we are. That's where we're stuck. And this passage shows us waiting, knowing what is on the other side for us. This is the end of the school day for an anxious child sitting in a desk. This is the end. This is 30 minutes before bedtime for the parent of a toddler. This is the Tuesday before your vacation starts. The pain and angst and struggle are there. And in all of this, you see that there's something better. But in this life, even more so, the dark night of the soul is that we look at this life and we see that something is not right. In the words of Han Solo, I've got a bad feeling about this. Creation. 18 through 22, we, we see this parallel in the text. In 18 through 22, we see creation suffers and waits. Because God's children suffer and wait. It's a continuation of what Paul says to us in verse 17. I don't want us to miss that. Where he closes out, or he doesn't actually close. We close by our paragraphs. But this last phrase of Paul before we get into verse 18 is, is this. If children then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. That does not sound fantastic. In order that we may also be glorified with him. It's a continuation of what Paul's been saying to us, that we would see creation suffering and waiting, God's children suffering and waiting. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, is what it says in verse 18. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. We're moving a direction, waiting, groaning, and hoping. Those are all things that we do, and what we want isn't yet here. We wait, we groan, we hope, we seek something more. What is here is not what we want. All the misery of the world screams that there is something wrong. 
all of the misery in our everyday lives, the things that we see on the news and the things that many of us have experienced say that there's something that is not right about this world. August 17th of 2017, 18 trillion gallons of water. I cannot even picture that in Home Depot buckets, and I've tried multiple times. 18 trillion gallons of water fell on Houston. Something is wrong. There was an earthquake in the Middle East this morning. Something is wrong. There's a larger earthquake in South America earlier this week. Something is wrong. Wildfires right now are decimating California. Something is wrong. There are also the personal experiences that every one of us walk through, the struggles, the things that are difficult to endure. Every funeral that we've ever attended says to us that something is wrong. Every hospital visit that you've ever had to make says something is wrong. Every shocking phone call you've received says something is wrong. Don't even get me started on murder, racism, deviant sexual behavior. Suffering is in the world. It is part of our world, and it is here with a purpose why would we suffer sin is present in the world because people sin because it is intrinsically tied to us it has affected not only our souls but the very world in which we live and every ounce of misery in this life says to us something is wrong. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. It is there to show us. Suffering and sin, they are present to show us how horrifically bad sin is. The writer, Paul, says, he uses a phrase that we wait with eager longing that we're in this between phase where God's going to reveal who his sons are but as we wait and who his daughters are but as we wait in this waiting there's an eager longing it's because we've seen something better and we're not quite there yet the, the actual turn of phrase there the word for eager longing means you cannot turn away from it the reason that we worship anything, the reason that our worship collapses on sports teams and on spouses and on our children, I'll just be truthful, we worship our children at times. The reason that we continue to worship things is we have been designed to worship, but we keep falling short, yet we know there's something more. That's why we keep trying to find our worshipful satisfaction in anything other than God. Something is wrong and we can't take our eyes off of the fact that there's something that's right. Creation was subjected to futility, it says in verse 20. Not willingly, this is where it gets tricky. Or, this is where we want to make it tricky. It does not have to be tricky. The creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who has power over creation? There was no vote. 
no one rounded up all of the animals and the plants as if plants can talk. And we live in a world where plants are, they get much more attention and credit than they deserve. But no one, have you met asparagus? No one rounded up the animals and the plants and the land and the sea and the people and asked them, do you guys think we should be subjected to futility? What do you think about us dying and decomposing? That did not happen. It was decreed. Who decreed that the world will be subjected to futility? God did. The world was subjected to futility by God. So that we would know that something was wrong. In the same way that when you turn certain ages... I'm 40 now. We're working through it. And I have pains in places that I did not know pains were supposed to happen. I had a crick. Is that a Texas word? We know what a crick is, right? Like something was twisted in my neck. It ran all the way to the floor to the other side of the church. Like it was so terrible. And it was telling me that something was wrong with something small was wrong. These things that are wrong are there to show us, yes, there's something that's wrong. But if you don't realize something is wrong, you'll never look for what's right. It's subjected to futility in hope. That's a huge word for us. Go with me. Let me just walk you through some ideas in verses 19 to 22. Creation, if you're a note taker, feel free to write things down. If you're not a note taker, just memorize what I say. Creation waits for God to reveal his children. We see that in 19. In verse 20, when creation waits, it waits in hope. What is that hope? That God will redeem. With hope, all of creation waits for its salvation. That God will redeem His people and restore creation to what it is intended to be. While creation waits in hope for salvation, it groans. The ultimate design of God in this broken world is one that is full of hope. It is not without it. Hope, though, is, is we don't use it correctly. We use hope differently than the Bible uses hope. We use hope interchangeably with the word wish. When we talk about hope, we say interchangeably, we hope we get a new car. Man, I wish I would get a new car. Been driving a 2008 Honda Accord that I've affectionately dubbed the Martyr Mobile. We hope some random stranger pays for our lunch. We wish some random stranger would pay for our lunch. But that's not what the New Testament means when it uses the word hope. Uh, hope in the New Testament literally means to be taken hold of by the certainty of God. It is anticipation with assurance. Anticipation with assurance. This is December the 24th for your children. I can't wait until tomorrow morning, but they know something's going to be there. They know that Santa Claus is going to come. They know that 
there will be whatever you do for your Christmas tradition. Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, he talks about hope in this way. He says, to know the hope of God is that you realize you are seized by a great affection. That God has taken a hold of you in the midst of you realizing the wrongness, but his affection overshadows, overruns. It shows you how much he cares for you. Well, what is the Christian hope? We have to ask that question. The Christian hope is twofold. Again, if you're a note taker, feel free. I am, the first is that we see this. I am, I know whose I am. Christian hope is that you know to whom you belong. To whom do you belong? The creator of the universe. You've not seen him. You're not staring face to face with them now, but you know that that's who you belong to. And we also, because we know whose we are, we know who we are. As Paul has already said, we are heirs to God's work and His kingdom. We are part of what God is doing. 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I'm not going to go into depth as to my vast understanding of childbirth as a man. I've been in a room where they handed me a scrub shirt because that's what I was, a scrub in that situation, that said the word coach. Do you know what coaching looks like there? You stand there with your jaw agape, unsure as to what's taking place and why they keep trying to hand you scissors. (laughs) But groaning is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, The literal word means a low note intended to express tension. We know the groan. Take out the garbage. Mow the grass. But it uses this pain of childbirth as the comparison. It's the sound that you make when you find out what you've ordered for your wife's birthday isn't going to be there until three days later. Amazon. Dirty, dirty Amazon. We see this idea running through the text that God's children... We are very much like creation and that we suffer and we wait. But we also see that this passage shows that Jesus, we are very much like him because we have been restored to him. Jesus suffered and was glorified. Therefore, God's children suffer and they will be glorified. Go with me to verse 23. And not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. We are in this world with this low-toned tension. This cannot be all there is. 
we have a taste of how good God is. But we're not quite there yet. We ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, this great affection, this assured great affection, we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. First fruits. We have a taste of how good God is, yet we still groan and we wait. First fruits are the first batch, a sample of what is to come. They are just a small picture, a smidgen of the goodness that will be provided. Paul's using a point of reference from his world. We have the first fruits, and those first fruits are saying there is assurance that there's something that's more. So, for Christmas last year, we have, we being my children, Hope has a sister, she's their aunt. That's how that works. She has a husband, he's their uncle. Also how that works. They... Uh, for Christmas, told the children that they would take them on a camping trip. So, here's what's going to happen. They're going to take my three oldest children because no one takes the little one. Ever. If you want to borrow him, feel free. So we can eat dinner somewhere. Really. And they are going to take the oldest three on this camping trip. But they didn't just tell them they were going to take them. They made a preview video that the kids did not even know about where they're taking pictures of them. They're, they're recording video of them running up and down these sand dunes and playing on playgrounds. This is a preview video which is just a snippet of what's actually coming for my kids. That trip has not come through yet. I am groaning as I wait for it to come through. Maybe all will be old enough to go by the time they go. The first fruits are just a small sampling. What are the first fruits of salvation for us? Let's, let's look at these. Uh, the first fruit of salvation is that we are internally alive. By the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, God has put our sin to an end. But the final fruit of that is not that you're internally alive, it's that you're eternally alive. The first fruit of salvation is internal freedom. The sin no longer has a hold on you. But the final fruit is this eternal freedom. That we will be in God's presence forever, not just free from the tension of sin, but free from sin itself. The first fruit is that we will become more like Jesus slowly. The promise of God for you as a believer is that you can become more and more like Jesus. The final fruit is that you will be like Jesus in his present forever consistently. First fruit versus final fruit. Shake your head if that makes sense. We good? If it doesn't make sense, email Jared. Because we have the Spirit, we finally have a sense of what God has intended and what he desires for us to eventually be. But I thought you said we're already the sons of God. What's, what's that mean? We're God's sons. Why are we not on the other side of the fence? Why can't we get away from these cats and Tom Brady photos? Adoption's a really important scriptural idea that we see manifesting itself in, Christian, in the Christian world that we live in a lot right now. 
And there's an already not yet to it. It's skyrocketing Christian families. And when we read the New Testament, hear me say this, we find that believers are called to care for widows and orphans. This is one of the best ways that we as Christians can do that. And every believer should come alongside of adoption in some strong, strategic way. We don't adopt to rescue. We adopt because we're rescued. But an international adoption, my, my friend Stephen, he, he adopted internationally multiple times. And their little one, they would know they were adopted. But they weren't free to come home yet. The, the mom and dad made a couple of visits with their children before all the paper was fine, paperwork was final. They would go and they would spend time with these kids, but they could not come home. They would write them letters, but they could not come home. They knew they belonged to someone and that was assured for them by who they've spent time with and by what they've received. But there's still this tension of, though I know to whom I belong, I'm not with them. When we look at this scripture, that's what's happening. Verse 24, when we walk through what Paul is saying to us here, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. We know to whom we belong for sure. But we're not with him forever. Not right now. That's why you still hurt. That's why the world still screams something is wrong. We wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemptions for our body. Because in that hope, this hope of what we do not see, it's what we're, this is how we're saved. It's that we certainly realize that God has certainly pursued us so that we can certainly be with him forever. In this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. So if you're a proof in the pudding person, this isn't for you. I will understand my place as a Christian when I'm with Jesus. That may mean you're never going to be with him. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? And that's just Paul making some street-level sense. Who, who's hoping for what they got? You got it. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. We groan as we wait. We struggle as we wait. We're as we wait. Why is this the way that it is? We wait for the whole, full hope of our, of our expression. Because we are hoping with glory in mind. Glory means wait. And we see it through the scripture. It's, um, it's heaviness. It's substantial. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote that Chronicles of Narnia movie. 1941, he talked about the weight of glory in the midst of a world war. That there's something that we hope for that's on the other side, that we're made for another world. He said at one point, at present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the refreshness and the purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with splendor we see, but the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in when human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation in its lifeless obedience. 
and they will put on its glory, or rather greater glory of which creation is only the first sketch. That's a super British artsy way to talk about the awesomeness of what God has promised us in Jesus, the eternal hope that we have. I guess the hard question that we have to ask as those who claim to follow Jesus is day to day, do our lives really say that we're peeking over the fence? When your neighbors and co-workers peek into the backyard of your life, how many of us are just sitting there with our hands holding our heads with nothing that says that we are eagerly expecting God to do monumental God things? When our friends and families who would openly say to you that they do not have this hope that is Jesus, see you, does your hope say that you do believe that Jesus is better, and because you believe that Jesus is better, you're going to keep peaking, you're going to keep striving, you're going to groan sometimes, but that groaning is just because you want what's on the other side. Because what's on the other side is worth it. Revelation 21 we see the other side. And when we see the other side, we see the, uh, the grandeur of the other side. The fantastic nature of the other side. Listen as I read from Revelation 21 and we consider the hope that we are longing for. The thing that we're, we say that we're wanting. I'm not saying you're wanting it. And I'm not saying that my life always looked like I want it. But this is what we say that we're peeking towards. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, preparing as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne room saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. No longer with suffering, no longer with struggle. It's with man. God's with us. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So the, the tears that are there because of struggle and sin and suffering, he's wiping those away. And death, it won't be anymore. No more funerals. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. No, earth, no more earthquakes, no, no more hurricanes. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on his throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he also said, Write this down. That's why I say it, because the Bible says it. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Why? Because to thirst is to suffer and we're not going to suffer anymore. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and the faithless and the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all the liars, all those deviant things, they won't be with me. What hope is there 
when you look in the mirror, what are you longing for? What are you seeking for? What are you savoring? That says that God to you is your father and says that Jesus is better than the trite, collapsible things of this world. Hope. Hope. Let's bow our heads together this morning. You may be in that dark night of the soul that is 3 a.m. But you are unfamiliar as to what is on the other side. And in the middle of your suffering and your struggle, God is saying, that's me. That's me. I'm I'm better. Is Jesus saying to you, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better. So maybe you would say, Jesus, I do need you. um, I'm stuck in my sin and I can't do anything about it. I don't even know how to look over the fence, but I keep hearing you call for me. I keep hearing you speak to me. So I want to trust you. I want to trust you with my life. If that's you and and you had that conversation, if you sense the Lord drawing you to himself, drawing you to the hope on the other side of the fence, then please, 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 please. You'll just turn in your card and say, I, I want to talk to someone about being a Christian. That's an option. Something to that effect is on the card. And you give that to my welcome crew as you leave. That they, they love you. They care for you. We'll follow up with you. But I know most of you. I know most of your faces. And I know... I know most of you love Jesus. But how many of us would say that we are not seeking to peek to the other side? That the struggle has overwhelmed and we have forgotten that it exists to show us the wickedness of our own sin and the wickedness of sin that would separate our friends and family from Jesus. The band is going to sing, and I know that our typical response to any singing is to stand up because that's what's next. Can we just let this sit on us for a second this morning? Maybe that for you that means you come to the front of this room and pray. We don't do that a lot in here, but 
I'd like to see him more. Maybe that means that you realize that God's just as big at the back of the room and you, you just grab your spouse, grab a friend, and you pray back there, Lord, I want to look like I'm peeking for, for something better. Maybe that means you just pray at your chair. God's at chairs too. So in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the, the calamity, God... I'm a believer in you and I'm groaning right now, but I, I want to be reminded that I groan in hope. Because you're better. You're Jesus, you're better. I'm at the back if you need me.